everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. We are going to pivot to a new topic today that we're going to hit over the course of a couple of weeks, talking about race. Uh, We understand that it's a a sensitive hot-button topic, uh, but we want to hit it from a couple of different angles. And again, the, the idea behind this podcast really unearthing the ideas that are shaping modern society. And so we're not going to hit this necessarily from a political standpoint, but trying to look at the ideas behind race that are informing the conversation that's going on in our nation. And uh, we'll bring in a guest speaker at some point here in the coming future to speak intelligently on this uh, topic. But uh, I'm going to kick it over to Drew right off the bat as Drew has prepped a lot of the content today. So Drew, why don't you take it away? Yeah, Mick, like you said, I just want to start by acknowledging the deep sensitivity of this topic. And people who've tracked with us for a long time will note that we've tended to wait on some of the hot button issues until much later into the podcast. Sexuality right at the end of season one and then race in season two. And that's on purpose just because we've seen certain issues are, are very emotional and have become very divisive. And so what we've tried to do is start by peeling back layers and getting more into the belief systems underneath them that then allow us to interpret these issues in our conversation. So this topic is complex, but I don't think it's complex because it's not clear in the Bible. I actually think the Bible is very clear and has a lot to say. Um, What makes it complicated is how deeply polarizing and politicized how we approach race has become, especially in the last couple of years. And so for most of us, you know, especially if you're kind of our generation and have been pretty close to some of these conversations, it's hard not to bring all of that into this. And so we're going to try hard today to stay out of policy. I am not a, I, that is not my expertise. It's not where we try to spend our time on this podcast. And so the bulk of our time is going to be in scripture. But I also want to acknowledge that it's, it's difficult for us or impossible to talk about something in a vacuum where those thoughts aren't in the back of our head. So like we've talked about before, let's try to suspend our assumptions. Let's try to take a pause maybe of even whatever deeply held political beliefs that get brought to the surface, and instead do the best we we can to really look at the Word of God on this one. Secondly, and I think this is a really important thing to acknowledge, is this is a very deeply personal issue for people. Most people of, of color that I know have had at least one incredibly painful experience in the realm of race, of overt racism, and that's not to mention just an ongoing systems in our society that have racial inequity in them that affect people on top of that. But it's it's deeply personal for somebody. And for a guy like me, as somebody who's majority culture, and I haven't had that. I haven't had that in the same way. And so I can talk about this, you know, maybe try to analyze it a little bit more theologically or intellectually. But I really want to acknowledge right out the gate that, that you know, for me, that's, that's very different from somebody who's had to live as a racial minority in modern United States and all that that means. And so I just want you to know if that's you, like I, I see you and, and really recognize that. And I've wrestled for a long time and part of even delaying talking about this is, do we really need more guys like me talking about this? And, you know, and I, I really wanted to take a posture, especially the events of the last couple of years and the last 18 months in particular, uh, of really trying to listen well and learn and maybe identify perspectives that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise as I listen to people share their experience. 
and um, as much as possible approach this conversation with a whole lot of humility, acknowledging that it's just very different for somebody who they've been deeply affected by this in a personal level. So I even wrestled with, you know, do we even do this topic at all for that very reason? But ultimately, the reason why I think it's important that we talk about it is I also, the flip side of that is what I don't want to do is make race the topic that only our African-American brothers and sisters or our Latino brothers and sisters talk about. I think it's important for all of us as believers to take ownership of this and recognize that we all have a responsibility to go to the Word of God. We all have a responsibility to analyze our own churches and culture in light of the Word of God, our own lives in light of the Word of God, and it can't just be the burden of the people who've been negatively affected by it, but it needs to be something that we all have ownership with. And so there's this tension there that I actually think is a healthy tension, and would ask for grace as we dive into this topic today. Um, Even as I acknowledge that tension, please hear our heart that what we really want to do here is is ensure that, that this is given the importance that I believe it warrants when we go to Scripture and that that's a concern of all of ours, whether it's impacted you on a very personal level or not, because it matters to the Word of God, because it matters to Jesus, it needs to matter for us as well. Yeah, it's great, Drew, as a setup. And and like we said, in one of the coming weeks, our friend Vincent Carpenter uh, is going to join us, who's an African-American man, and he's going to go through more of the pastoral aspect of how we navigate this topic, because we can't, especially in this podcast, we can't separate the intellectual from the pastoral perspective. So we're looking forward to hosting Vincent, and you can look forward to that with us. But I think it's helpful, Drew, to to define some terms, uh, even the just the term race is going to bring up a host of reactions from people or just emotions and different thoughts that are associated with that term. So why don't you help us? Where, where are you starting from when you think of the concept of race? Yeah, and there's a, there's a delineation here that's probably helpful between ethnic and race as two different things. Race is a relatively recent idea. It lasts several hundred years, maybe 500 years. And of course, you, you'll certainly see concepts that you can find in history I'm going to read from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and they're always a great resource. As an aside, you know, I I find it helpful sometimes in conversations like this to pause for a minute and define terms, like what are we actually talking about here? And so they're actually quoting some other work as well. So they're kind of referencing these other authors, Cornell and Hartman, and they define race as a human group defined by itself or others as distinct by virtue of perceived common physical characteristics that are held to be inherent. Determining which characteristics constitute the race is a choice humans make. Neither markers nor categories are predetermined by any biological factors. Ethnicity, conversely, is defined as a sense of common ancestry based on cultural attachments, past linguistic heritage, religious affiliation, claim kinship, or some physical traits. Racial identities are typically thought of as encompassing multiple ethnic identities. So let me just simplify that definition. What we're doing with race is we're actually lumping together a lot of different ethnic groups under one big umbrella that is then being arbitrarily defined by something like skin color. And most biologists today would acknowledge that, you know, as you get into the study of genetics, there's really no genetic evidence for any of this. It's purely a visual thing. Um, You could, you know, point to geography as well of people who kind of came from similar regions of the world and have similar traits as a, as a result of it. But there's not, there's not genetic differences at all between that. And so from a scientific standpoint, it's very much not something that's in favor anymore. But the problem is that it has tremendous implications for people living in today's world, that because of hundreds of years of looking at the world this way, we've created an environment where people are forced to live 
under these categories. And depending on where you fit, that's going to affect a lot of different things in your life. And so it's something that does have tremendous ramifications for people who are having to live in this system of viewing the world in this way. Make a comment there. I saw a video years ago when genetic mapping was just starting to become uh, more readily accessible to the general public. And this group, I don't know if it was Ancestry DNA or 23andMe, it was one of the companies that was commercializing DNA mapping early on. But essentially, they, they went around the world and they got a bunch of self-avowed national nationalists and ethnocentrists, people who would say, I'm of a pure bloodline, and who were vehemently opposed to some, you know, some opposing racial or ethnic group. So they interviewed Sunni Muslims who, who hated certain uh, groups of Shiite Muslims, or they interviewed neo-Nazis who were kind of of this pure Aryan race. And and long story short, I mean, you can probably look up the video. I'm sure it still exists on YouTube. What, what ended up happening is that as they got their DNA mapped, they found that often they had significant percentages of their DNA that were shared with these these groups, these ethnic groups or these racial groups that they despised. And they found that it was l- far less linear, far less categorized as they had assumed that was, it was actually deeply moving watching these people realize that they were in one sense interrelated with these people groups that they abhorred showing that again some of the way we think about ethnicity and race is is more of an expression of culture that obviously has its roots in uh, genetic predispositions but it was a fascinating study it's great Mick it's a very fluid concept and especially in today's multicultural world it's like it You know, there's a lot of it that just doesn't make sense and is entirely arbitrary. But the problem is that it still affects people, and it's not something that we can wish away. But there are major impacts on people's lives based on the fact that socially, this is how the world is seen to be understood. The biblical term that you're going to run into frequently in Scripture in the New Testament is ethnos, and it's referring to ethnic groups. And in your Bible, it might be translated nation, but that's not the geopolitical nation state that we have in modern society. That's a much later invention, but it's actually referring to ethnic groups that were often would have physical characteristics, that they'd also have language and other cultural elements that they all held to be in common. And so while race as a kind of umbrella term is a more recent socially constructed phenomenon, ethnicity goes back much further and has always been a major part of how human beings relate to one another. And there have always been, as best I can tell, significant ethnic conflicts, at least as far back into history as any of us can see, and you certainly see it all across the pages of Scripture, of how do different ethnic groups get along with one another. And so because it's been such an, a long-term, ongoing aspect that Israel and then later the church needed to grapple with, there's a tremendous amount of biblical material that deals with this, and we're going to get to that here in a second. One, one last thing before we dive into Scripture, the conversation on race has been hijacked by political operatives over and over again, where I think people are using this to further their political agendas. I would challenge that we need a distinctly Christian vision of race. doesn't mean there's not wisdom and insight to be gleaned from politics, and nor am I saying that politics are unimportant. I recognize that policy can have a, a major impact on somebody's life. So I'm not saying that we need to not have any politics, but I think as a Christian, we have to start with our Christian identity and what our faith teaches us about what it means to be a person. And so I want to challenge, you know, I think some people are tempted to listen to a topic like this and you're listening for buzzwords. And when you hear the right buzzword, then you can put somebody in a category, you know, if somebody's woke or, you know, you just kind of, we have these categories that we assign people to. 
And those categories tend to be external political categories. And I think we need to be careful there to instead say our task as Christians is to start by going to the Word of God and, and the history of the church and then ultimately the leadership of the Spirit to ask the question, what is, what is this modern reality that we're living with and under what does this look like through the lens of the gospel and the work of the Spirit? And then how do we interpret that accordingly? Another way of saying that is whenever our politics looms larger than our faith on a key topic like this, that should be a warning sign for us. And where, where is my emotional energy? Where are my fears? Where are, you know, what, what emotions are being evoked inside of me? And we need to be careful. It doesn't mean that we don't engage politics. It just means we've got to be anchored in the Word of God in a very deep way so that we can see these kind of things rightly for sure on this one, and for sure on a topic like this, it is so emotional. It does affect people so much. I think we have to use a lot of caution in how we addressed it. So here's, here's my central thesis today for this episode, is that ethnic unity is a primary concern of the New Testament. In fact, I'd argue it's one of the top few topics in the entire New Testament is this idea of what does it mean for people from different ethnic backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, but you can expand beyond that what does it mean for us to live together in unity as the people of God? And that is a massive, massive theme that you will find all throughout the New Testament. And I, I have heard people incorrectly, when talking about race, say, we just need to focus on the gospel. And I, I want to flag that statement and say, this is central to the gospel. And if you want to read the New Testament and be a student of the New Testament, you cannot escape that this is a central topic all throughout the New Testament. And so there's going to be slightly different application points. You know, they weren't grappling with race as is modernly understood, just like we're not wrestling with Jewish dietary restrictions and how to welcome Gentile believers in the church. So there is a little bit of contextual difference, but it's really almost entirely the same theological reasoning that allowed the church to welcome Jew and Gentile together and ultimately Ethiopian and Roman and all these other groups together in one church. The theology behind that holds true and is a major theme throughout the New Testament. I know you're going to focus on the New Testament, Drew, but I would back that out even further and say, I, to me, that's this is one of the central themes of the entire biblical narrative. And you go back to the preface, if you will, Genesis 1 through 11, and look at the themes embedded there of this unity that existed among mankind and God and, and then the fracturing of that unity and and it going from this kind of universal portrayal of God interacting with humankind and then the necessity of zeroing in on a people, the nation of Israel, but so that they would be a priestly kingdom to bring a knowledge of God back to all the peoples of the earth, this desire, this refrain that's repeated throughout the Old Testament even, of I will dwell among them, they will be my people, I will be their God, this desire of God to be among mankind in this unified expression of humanity that Israel was just selected by God's design to be a conduit of God's grace to the nations. And then obviously the inability to affect that type of wide-sweeping mission through the nation of Israel, nation, Israel's own dysfunction and shortcomings, and, and that leading to the coming of Jesus. And So I think there's a rich context in the Old Testament that sets the stage for how prevalent this conversation is in the New Testament, this mystery that Paul keeps talking about of the bringing together Jew and Gentile in, in the man, Jesus Christ. And if you go back and you look at different ethnic groups, uh, what tended to happen in, in a animistic or polytheistic culture is 
ethnic groups would have their own gods. And so you might be this tribe and you might have a god for your tribe. You might have multiple gods for your tribe and assign gods to different geographic locations or a god of war or different things like that. So what Israel's doing is they're proclaiming one God, and that one God the Father created all of the earth. Therefore, if you follow the logic, that means that God is God over all the different ethnic groups of the earth. And that's very central in Israel's confession from the very beginning. But as you said, Mick, what you had is that God had set Israel apart. So they had what we'd refer to as boundary markers or identity markers. And these were the things that kept Israel separated and distinct. And the reason for that was because they were going to ultimately be corrupted by the idol-worshiping Gentiles that surrounded them. And so God was trying to protect them. And the Torah, it was an act of grace so that Israel could stay set apart and worship the one true God. But it was always intended that Israel would be the priest for all the nations of the earth. And if we go a little further into theology, we see this is what makes, part of what makes what Jesus did so significant is because he became a sacrifice to purify the Gentiles. And he, he made a way for them to be brought into new covenant with God. And if you look at the, the argument of Romans, Romans 1 is describing the sin of the Gentiles, but Romans 2 is describing the sin of the Jews. And then Romans 3 is, is saying that it's ultimately what Jesus did on the cross that defeated sin and death itself. So because sin and death itself are defeated, therefore there is no barrier between Jew and Gentile anymore. And that's found in the work of Jesus. And so then if you keep going, what you also find is it doesn't stop there, but it's, it's actually this very Trinitarian, you know, God is God of all people. Jesus makes a sacrifice for all people and defeats sin and death that prevented all people from worshiping God. But then it's the sending of the Spirit that indwells and inhabits the nations of the earth. And what we're saying is that the ministry of the Spirit inside of us is the boundary marker that allows us to be family together. And so if you look at the, at the account of Acts 11, uh, 10 and 11 with Cornelius, I mean, that was the deciding factor. Paul is watching Cornelius and his household speaking in tongues. I'm sorry, Peter is watching Cornelius and his household speaking in tongues. And he's saying, if the Holy Spirit can move on them, who am I? Who am I to say anything else? You know, if God has welcomed them, who am I to deny them? And that's the logic of Acts 11 and Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. So you just think, like, what a big deal that was for all of human history. What a big deal that was for the early church to take a boundary marker that had been in place for a thousand years to separate the Jew from the Gentile so they wouldn't be polluted by the sins of the Gentile. But because of the ministry of Jesus and the indwelling of the Spirit, that dividing wall of hostility is no longer needed so that the two can actually become one. And that dividing wall is actually referring to a wall in the temple that kept the Gentiles in a separate place, and the Jews could actually come in and perform the sacrifice and worship. And, and so God is figuratively taking that wall down so that we can worship God together. It's a really helpful analysis, Drew. I was just thinking as you were talking, especially as you began that last thought about the fact that historically you had these people groups that had kind of this pantheon of gods, and it was very specific to them. And it, that just shed light on Ephesians 3, 14 and 15 for me says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that just kind of framed that passage in a different light, that, that uh, analysis you just gave. I appreciate that. And I think we get, you know, thinking of Ephesians, if I was going to look at the New Testament, I think that this topic of what does it mean to have a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church is a primary concern for three of the four gospels, the book of Acts, the letter to the Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. And so if you know, you know, biblical theology, like we just picked the, you know, what would be considered the, some of the major theological heavyweight books of the New Testament. 
And why did the why did the authors write? That's what's referred to as the occasion, and it's a really critical thing whenever you're doing biblical studies. Is what's Paul trying to say? Why why is he saying? What's prompting him to write this this letter? And that becomes a key to actually unlock the content of the letter. And so, unfortunately, I can't go through all of those and and draw out. Um, but I think you could study. But I, I do want to highlight a couple just so you can see what I'm talking about. So let me start with Romans. I've already talked you through a little bit of this. But if you take the thesis of Romans in Romans 1.16, it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, a lot of us just stop right there and we view this as Romans is talking about the power of the gospel and what it means to be saved. But you actually have to read the rest of that verse, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So what's Paul saying here is the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone And that is what allows Jew and Gentile to join together in worship. And that's what he's going to argue throughout the book of Romans. And if you go to the conclusion in Romans 15, 7 through 9, Paul ends his argument with this. Accept one another then, and that's speaking to Jew and Gentile. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Then Paul goes on to talking about worshiping in one united voice. So if you take the, the book of Romans, where it's probably the most clear and compelling outline of the entire gospel, at its very core, has the concept of a multi-ethnic church. And so we cannot say that race is not a gospel issue. It's absolutely a gospel issue because we're talking about the centrality of what Jesus has actually done in securing a people for himself, and ultimately the Holy Spirit working to bring that to pass. Let's jump over to Mark. Uh, so it's, you know, you can see it. I, and I would actually say um, I'm picking Mark on purpose because if you're going to read Ephesians or Galatians or Matthew or Luke Acts, this is going to jump out you at you a little bit more if you read it through this lens I'm describing. But Mark might be a little harder to see, so that's why I'm choosing Mark. Um, In Mark, there's a few different sections, and one of them uh, you can refer to as the lake stories, and it's in chapters 4 through 8, and it's a collection of stories that all happen around the Sea of Galilee. And on one side of the Sea of Galilee was predominantly Jewish territory, so you have places like Capernaum and things like that. On the other side was Greek territory, and that's what's referred to in Scripture as the the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. And what you notice in the lake stories, if you pay attention is how Jesus goes back and forth across the lake. And so the first time that Jesus crosses the lake from Jewish territory into Gentile territory, he immediately runs into a storm. And this is the first story of Jesus calming a storm. And so he's crossing a barrier. He's running into this impenetrable wall, but Jesus actually has power over it. I think that's meant to be symbolic. And he stills the storm, and then he lands on the other on the shore. So you think about this from a Jewish perspective. You know, on the other side of the sea is where all the Gentiles are. These are the bad guys. These are, these are the people that are unclean and are going to ultimately pollute us. But what does Jesus do? This is the story where he meets the demoniac. So immediately he lands on the other shore. Just think of the symbolism. There's a demon-possessed man, tombs, and pigs. So it's like all the unclean things from a Jewish ritual standpoint meet Jesus immediately. So he had to cross a barrier, and then when he got there, it's all the uncleanliness of death, demons, and ritual purity. They all meet him right there on the shore. And so if you read it from a Jewish perspective, it's, it's an amazing story. But what does Jesus do? He delivers the demons, and then where does he send the demons? Into the pigs, and they rush into the water, which is symbolic of cleansing. 
And so he cleanses the Gentile territory from its uncleanliness, and that's by the word and the power of God. And so just think of the this, this symbolism of that. And then if you keep reading those stories, you will see systematically that every miracle Jesus does on one side of the lake, he turns around and he does it on the other side of the lake. So he feeds 4,000 and he feeds 5,000. And what he's showing, and even if you look at the setting, a lot of it's happening in boats and it's happening on green grass and hills. It's this picture of fishermen and shepherds. And Jesus is being a fisherman on each side of the lake among the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's being a shepherd on each side of the lake, feeding the Jews and the Gentiles. And this whole subsection ends in Mark 8 with this really curious story where the disciples are together crossing the lake one last time, and right there in the middle of the water, they have this argument, and it's this really funny story about the bread. And Jesus asks them, you know, they, they think Jesus is getting after him for forgetting bread. And he asks them, how much bread do we have left? And they say, one loaf. And then the story ends with Jesus saying, that's enough. And so you have this picture halfway between Jewish territory, halfway between Gentile territory. They're all on the boat together. And Jesus is saying, one loaf, which we know later is symbolic of one body, is enough. You, you see this theme, and it's all throughout the New Testament, if you'll have eyes to see it, that this is a major, major concern, whether it's the Gospels, whether it's the story of Acts, or whether it's the epistles, of what it means for us to follow Jesus. That's really powerful, Drew. Thank you for expounding. I've never thought of the lake stories that way, and that's that's just really powerful imagery, especially that one loaf. It is. There's so much meaning packed in these little statements that often take us off guard, and we don't quite know what to do with, but if you, you do a little digging, uh, it just makes total sense, and it is a foreshadowing, again, to those themes, kind of those Pauline themes in the epistles of the, the one body that is so prevalent in the writings of not, not just Paul, all the New Testament writers. That's really powerful. So when you kind of look back at, at church history and the witness of this message that you've been unpacking in the scriptures, what do you, what do you see in church history? We've referenced this in a past episode on missiology. The missiologist Andrew Walls talks about the serial nature of Christian expansion compared to the progressive nature of Islamic expansion. And I know that sounds totally random after what we've just been talking about, but when he's describing serial nature of Christian growth, what he's saying is that the, the Christian faith has jumped around the globe. And so what you could identify as maybe the headquarters of global Christianity is very different. You know, and at one time it's it starts off maybe in Jerusalem, and then it's actually for the first several hundred years it was in North Africa. And uh, many of the great fathers of the faith were Africans, and including Athanasius, who was one of the primary defenders of the faith, was a black African. And you kind of go through. So many of the heroes of the faith, we, we make this assumption, and I think this is our own cultural blindness, that they were Greek or or even Roman ethnicity, you know, as far as their ethnic background, but a lot of them were actually African. And if not, you know, then uh, obviously Middle Eastern and other things as well. And so what, what Andrew Walls is describing, though, is that you can't really pin any one culture down as the capital of Christianity. It jumps around. It goes, you know, Jerusalem, then Alexandria, then it's up to Rome, and then, you know, it just, it's all over the map, all over the globe, and then over time as the church is divided— um, as tragic as that has been, but then you actually have capitals of the faith. And, you know, today we've talked about where, you know, if you're going to identify an epicenter of global Christianity, it's probably somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America. And it's just, you really can't make the gospel the property of any one culture, theologically, but also historically. I was just reading this book, um, looking at Christianity in Africa, and in this this author is arguing that there's about 1,250 references to African places and nearly 1,500 
references to African people in the scripture. And, you know, you could say that same thing if you're going to look at whether it's Europe or Asia. And so all throughout scripture and then all throughout church history, I, I, I would count this to the Holy Spirit has never allowed the gospel to be held prisoner in just one place forever and instead has allowed the gospel to bounce around. And so Andrew Walls contrasts that to Islam, which I think is a helpful comparison, uh, which is very much anchored in Arabic culture, and it's progressively expanded. But the closer you get to its heartland on the Arabian Peninsula, the more you see, and that culture is then projected outward onto other cultures. And that's just not the same way that the church has grown in history. You know, and Mick, as you've shared earlier, you know, just echoing the meta narrative. And I think what we see historically coming to pass is what we see in Scripture, that we do have out of the scattered rebellious nations, God chose a people, but he chose a people to be a witness. And then from the people he chose to be a witness, God himself became a man. And then it's in that context we see Israel's priestly vocation perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And now all of a sudden the doors are flung open and we have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And at the end of the day, that's what allows us to worship together. And then if you fast forward to the end of Scripture, you see Revelation 7-9, where all the tribes, tongues, all the ethnic groups, all the categories, whatever categories we've assigned people are gathered before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. And it's my, my conviction that there's beauty buried in the different ethnic groups and cultures all across the planet, and that, that the Holy Spirit is, is bringing us together as the people of God so that we might worship God together in one voice. And that's what... Even at the end of Romans, I didn't read this verse, but it's talking about worshiping God with one unified voice. I mentioned on previous podcasts talking about Pentecost and the power of Pentecost, but something that always struck me is that when the Holy Spirit fell on the gathered church at Pentecost, they spoke in tongues, plural, not in a tongue. And it's striking to me. I think you see this. Why did the Holy Spirit not supernaturally give the believers the ability to speak Hebrew? Instead, what the Holy Spirit did is he indwelt the various languages and cultures that were, were represented. And immediately at Pentecost, we get this list of nations that are gathered, and they're, they're actually coming from multiple different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. They're gathered together, and they're worshiping and hearing the worship of God together supernaturally, where the, the name of Jesus is being praised in a bunch of different languages and ultimately reaching a bunch of different ethnic groups. And that points to our future that's the end goal of all of this. The whole story culminates with that. And so we have to look at the end and bear in mind that's that's eternity, and that's what's coming. And we get foretaste of that in this life. But like all other things, we also still have to deal with the stain of sin. All right, so let's let's wrap up with um, what does this all mean? You know, my, my goal was to try to demonstrate how central this is in the gospel. But how do we apply this? How do we take something? I, I hope you're getting that this is not a minor point or not just some political thing or not something that— you know, somebody read on a blog and therefore decided the church needs to care about, but this is something that no matter what's going on in our culture and no matter what's in vogue or not, what's popular or not, this is a gospel issue and we need to, we need to see it that way. But what do you do with it? We've had all these teachings on ethics, and a move I want to make here is to start by saying, how do I as a person and how do we as the people of God address this issue, rather than getting into how do we as a political citizen in our nation address this issue. I'm not saying that that doesn't matter, and I do, I do believe that I have to then take my theology and that does inform how I understand my public responsibilities. Uh, but that's not where I'm going to primarily focus today, because I think first and foremost in the church, we have to learn what it means to be the church and live under the kingdom of Jesus, and that that's where this all starts. And it's actually my activity as a member of God's household and how I treat people, how I interact with people, and how we do that together 
uh, in the context of our community, that's where we need to put our primary attention, even, even as we also have other duties as well. If you look and see, you know, the logic, and you can actually see this all throughout the New Testament, the logic of this is because of the sacrifice of Jesus and because the fact that we are all born again together into one body, one spirit, one baptism, you know, you just go through the laundry list. What that means now is that we become brothers and sisters. And that move right there is so significant because, I mean, just think of that. Like when I'm talking about these kinds of issues, if I'm talking about somebody as a political concept, I see this very different than if I'm talking about my brother or my sister. It doesn't mean you don't have arguments with your brother and sister. It doesn't mean, you know, there's not differences with your brothers and sisters. And if you have a family, we all understand that. But at the end of the day, there's a willingness to drop what you're doing. And, you know, as we see in Scripture, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. And so I have to take it seriously, the experience of my brothers and sisters, because they're my brothers and sisters. And that's all the logic that I need. I'm, I'm part of the, the family of God. And if somebody's suffering, then I need to be there for them. And it doesn't always mean I can fix somebody's problem. It doesn't mean I can make everything go away. But it does mean I care because ultimately we're part of the household of God. Now, I want to be careful to, to, to balance one thing out. What, it, what this statement does not mean is that the realities of living with race or a different ethnic group just suddenly disappear. This is, can be referred to as colorblindness, where people talk about the concept of race as though because we're Christian, we don't have to think about that anymore. Ultimately, I would argue that on two sides. On one side, I would say God created ethnicity, and it's a good thing. And so, like all things, sin has caused complication and, you know, whatever it might be, the ways that people have been mistreated in history— but there's a core beauty that's found in ethnicity. And so I don't want to wipe that away. I want to celebrate that. Secondly, when it comes to the pain that's in this world, the reality is even as we, by the grace of God, as the people of God, learn to love one another as family, we all leave and we end up in, in worlds where the reality of our race, our ethnicity, or whatever the case may be, still affect us in a very tangible and powerful way. And so just like, you know, any other family member, if there was something going on in their life that was affecting them in a deep way, even if that thing is not affecting me, I still have to get in their world and love them and be present with them, talk with them, support them, do what I need to do. And that has to be my first posture. Doesn't mean I always have to agree, but what it does mean is that I, I care because they're my brother or my sister. So how do I apply this, this logic? What I need to do is, is be, just be aware and listen to people. Like, you know, we uh, so much of this comes down to relationship of, of do we really build relationship with people that are different than us, that are part of the church? And I think it could be so easy sometimes um, to gravitate towards people that are just like us. But the, the power of the gospel is that I'm now united with people that are actually very different than me. And there's so much beauty in celebrating that. And you'll see this actually in scriptures that where the church gets this wrong, they tend to get rebuked pretty harshly. And it, you'll, you'll definitely see it in First Corinthians where Paul gets after the Corinthian church, and, and James does the same thing. You know, he's getting after him because he's like, you guys are not treating your brothers and sisters rightly. You're allowing the previous social order to cloud the way that you see your brother and your sister. And it doesn't really matter if you're a wealthy landowner or if you're a day laborer. When you come together, you come together as equals, as brothers, as sisters, and you need to let that be your primary way of viewing your relationships with other people. And, and so I think that then becomes a big deal. So, you know, for us, I, I would challenge— you know, especially if you're not an ethnic minority and you're living in majority culture, whether that's here in the United States or elsewhere in the world, uh, it's right for you to listen to experiences 
and to, to be aware of what your brother and sister go through. That's, that's how healthy families should operate. And, you know, so for me, it's like, I just try to pay attention to things and recognize that there are hurdles that I don't have. And I'm not buying into some, I don't have to buy into like some big political narrative to, to make that statement. So let me give you an example. After World War II, the GI Bill, black homeowners were cut off from some of these really easy loans and redirected away from certain neighborhoods or not given access to capital. And so you just think, you think about what would have happened in 1946 if you'd had a bunch of people that suddenly were able to invest in homes in the fast-growing suburbs of places like San Francisco or Chicago or New York City, how different our nation would look today. So you have a historic injustice that continues to have major impact because it cut people off from generational wealth and you know even the nature of schooling. So you know we're talking about economic opportunity, educational opportunity, where just that one thing could have really made major changes. So of course, none of us would, would willingly engage in that kind of behavior today. But if I'll take the time to listen and talk to my brother and sister, I can recognize they're still living with the impact of what happened almost 70 years ago. And that's just one example. There's hundreds, thousands of them. And so that's where listening comes in. I can't fix all those problems. I'm not saying we, all, we need to walk around feeling guilty all the time. I'm saying we need to love our brothers well. We need to love our sisters well. We need to have an awareness of what, what they're up against that I'm not up against. And then I, out of that place at times, what starts to happen is we start to identify places we can make a difference and help people and, and just be aware that what, what this person's going through is not something that I've ever had to go through. And so maybe there's a way I can support them that's unique or needed. And all of that comes about by relationships. So I'm just giving you one example. But what that example stems from is a willingness for us to pause, to listen, and to truly treat our brothers and sisters like brothers and sisters. And even if in the end you have a different political perspective or whatever, I mean, you know, that's all, I, I recognize that's all part of it. But if we start with being brother and sister, we start with relationship, we start with prayer, we start with Christian love, I think that cuts through a lot of the issues that we're up against, at least in the church, of how we tackle this really incredible topic. It's great stuff, Drew. And if those last application points are kind of down at street level, let me pan it way back just for a moment here to round out the podcast. And that is, again, when I when I look back at the whole narrative of Scripture and I see God's intention there laid out in Genesis 1 and 2 and the, the unity of mankind and the fellowship that they enjoyed with God and, and then the brokenness that, that was introduced into the world as a result of the fall. And you had this fracturing, this scattering of humankind and then obviously with Cain and Abel as the, the archetype that would then project out through the rest of the scriptures, this enmity between brothers. And I think the work of Jesus on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit is so profound in this light. Of course, from a soteriological standpoint, we did a whole episode on that. But the broader expansion of what it means when we pray, you know, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, we're praying into this mission of God to unify all peoples in Jesus. And, and just a couple of scriptures here to reflect on as we close. One is uh, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And and uh, this is this refrain is repeated in Colossians 1, talking about the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And as I look around the world today, uh, I mean, just turn on the news, you know, and any uh, given number of news segments and any given night is going to reflect this ongoing 
kind of desire of the human heart for unity and then the the ongoing enmity that is creating the barriers for that and uh, when I watch movies it's amazing when you kind of think through this lens and you watch movies the plot line of most major blockbusters has something to do with unifying peoples with bringing peoples together under one banner this is the cry of the human heart and it's why it breaks our hearts when we see what's going on in places like Afghanistan today and and rightfully so, that it grieves us. And so this is a a central theme, and it's a central theological theme in the scriptures. It's a central sociological theme and ecclesiological theme. And so we're hitting it from, again, from this angle to start with, because a lot of our political ideas around race uh, need grounding in this this kind of biblical idea around the the ethnos that the scriptures talk about so frequently. So appreciate your thoughts today, Drew, and track with us. We're going to revisit this again here in the coming weeks and continue to build out these thoughts around uh, race and ethnic identity. Thanks for tuning in today, and we will catch you next time on Ideology.